Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Phil Hayes. Phil is from The Ticket Sellers, a Birmingham-based provider of ticketing solutions for public, crew, artists, volunteers, traders and guests. Founded in 1998. Phil, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves, uh, Phil. And normally we would dive straight in to the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But just considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we begin there um, because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for the likes of yourselves, just how has it affected you and your operations, particularly with the impact on the event sector? Well, um, I'm not going to lie. Obviously, um, it's been pretty devastating for businesses like ours and indeed anyone working in the events, hospitality, um, live music, etc. Um, industry. It has been incredibly challenging. We sort of saw it coming when we started to get these um, reports coming from overseas of a new virus that was spreading. And of course, when areas in China went into um, full lockdown, we thought, well, I wonder what would happen if that happened here in the UK. But I think um, even as late as sort of the beginning of March, we were still sort of vaguely optimistic that it would sort of wash over and wouldn't cause us any problems. And then as we got towards the middle of March, it became clear that this was going to be an issue here in the UK and indeed globally. And we started to think very quickly about what impact that might have on our business. Um, we were dependent on most of our clients for the events that we work with deciding what they wanted to do with their event. And initially, what almost everyone did was said, okay, we're going to postpone our event for spring, summer, we're going to push it back to September, and we're going to hope, fingers crossed, that um, this is all passed by September. Uh, and that was sort of the initial wave of optimism that we rode um, early on in the year. And then as time went on and we got into sort of June, July, August, and it became apparent that wasn't uh, it wasn't going to be quite as smooth as, as we all hoped. And the events that were postponed to September started to get cancelled. Then we realised that things were really quite serious mm. and we're going to be in this for quite a long time. Yes, it's certainly something that is going to be with us for uh, quite a while. And even if we fast forward one or two years, hopefully by which time we have a working vaccine and the virus itself is no longer an issue. Do you still think it will take some time for the event sector to come back as it was just because of consumer confidence, anxiety, and there could still be something of a COVID hangover for some time yet? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think there's um, a few factors at play here that are going to affect our industry for a while. I mean, first, the obvious one is that um, mass gatherings are going to be difficult. Um, it's not impossible um, for the time being, at least until there are um, one of different measures put in place. So, for example, it could be that vaccines are the, the way forward for events. And when we're comfortable that uh, a reasonable level of the population has been vaccinated and therefore the risk of transmission is, is massively reduced, then it could be that we see those sorts of events start to happen again. Um, it might be that other um, solutions or what kind of paves the way. So, for example, quick tests mm. for people on the way into events. So, and I Boris uh, mentioned something like this, didn't he, in an update recently, or or it was leaked, I can't quite remember how it came about, but this sort of uh, this moonshot of uh, rapid testing, it's a little bit mm. like a pregnancy test that you can uh, 
take a swab and very quickly find out if um, if someone has the, the virus or not. So, so that might um, open the doors a little bit towards events. Uh, another initiative overseas that's quite exciting is using dogs to detect whether people have um, this virus or not. So I thought that was quite interesting. Obviously, we already use dogs at events for other purposes, so mm-hmm. that would tie in quite nicely. So that's a, a possibility. But I think you're right that even when you get these measures in place and you've sort of said, look, we've got a safe way for people to attend this event, you've got to get around the fact that we've very quickly adjusted to not being around lots of other people. Um, I don't know about you, but when I watch um, TV programs, for example, and I see people going in for a handshake at the start of a meeting, I kind of recoil in horror. and I think, well, you don't do that. You don't shake people's hands anymore. That's just not what we do. Mm. And so even very small interactions like that have become um, abnormal for us, and we very quickly got used to keeping our distance. And so, yes, I think that's going to be one of the most difficult barriers to overcome when we want to get events happening again. And just reflecting back on the whole experience of the last few months, um, we are trying to find some positive in what has been a really dark and dense cloud over all of us over the course of this year. So is there anything perhaps that this experience of crisis management has taught you or any other positives that perhaps you can take from any of this? I think what's been absolutely great is how well our team have responded to this. Uh, We were very apprehensive about all the different steps that we had to take, you know, even things like just um, sitting down the office and asking everyone to work from home. Just every decision like that along the way, we were sort of talking as a leadership team and how do we think people respond to this? Um, Is it going to have an impact on people's well-being if they're at home for a a long period of time? Because remember, going into this, we weren't really sure how long we'd be asking people to work from home for, and it's been over six months now. So we, we weren't really sure what to expect, but it was incredible how the team all came together, how I think without exception, everyone's response to everything that we, we did was positive. And, and, and you've got to think this is a team whose primary focus for the last six months or so has been on refunding customers' money. So basically doing the exact opposite of what we normally do and, and, and channeling money out of the business back into the pockets of customers where it needs to be if the events have been cancelled. And they put all of their efforts into making sure that happens. And when you think about that, for a team that's normally focused on trying to grow a business and to, to bring in money for the business, to ask them to do the complete opposite and develop tools and, and to put processes in place to help that, it, it's pretty incredible how well everyone responded to that. It's certainly been something that we've seen over the last few months, isn't it? The fact that people have really risen to the occasion during a time of adversity and stood up and been counted and really brought out the best in themselves because it can be difficult to do that when there is so much anxiety out there and you're having to safeguard people's mental health along the way as well. It is a challenge, but business has largely held up its part of the bargain, I feel. Yeah, and and we've tried really hard to make sure that we are checking in with people regularly with we're making sure that no one sat at home by themselves for, for too long without someone sort of either picking up the phone or, or sending them a message or or even trying to meet up for a, a coffee or something face-to-face so people are, are getting a bit of normality from their work environment, um, you know, as much as we can do in the current circumstances. Mm, that's certainly encouraging to hear because mental health certainly has been thrust back into the limelight by the pandemic situation, not just because of that anxiety over health and overemployment, but also that social isolation element of the lockdown, as you've sort of touched on there. So it is important in a leadership point of view to just not just also safeguard that of everybody around you, but also to just look after your own inner leadership role too, because when you're having to be a beacon of 
motivation, inspiration and reassurance during a time like this. Sometimes it can get a little bit too much for the person at the top, can't it? So you have to have a moment to take stock, step back from things and maybe even switch off for a little while. Yeah, I completely agree. And and what's really helped me personally uh, during the spring and the summer, I was going out um, almost every morning for a bike ride for about an hour in the morning. I'd go out quite early um, and get back and sort of start work around 8, 8.30 in the morning. I'd be doing so having been out in the fresh air, in the countryside. I feel really, really energized by cycling for an hour. And the best thing about it was that I could just clear my head uh, of the worries, of the, the thoughts and, and concerns that I had. And I could just pick a topic and let my mind just kind of chew over that topic while I cycled. So you kind of get into the rhythm of cycling uh, and breathing. You've got the, the fields and the, the country lanes are kind of flashing by. But then my, my mind was able to just think about one particular topic, you know, how are we going to deal with this or what would be the best way to do this or who in the company perhaps needs a bit more support at this point in time or whatever it happens mm. to be. Um, and it was it was great just to step away from the desk and not have any kind of inbound notifications or calls or anything like that. Just um, those, that one hour each morning was just so kind of precious to me with, with no interruptions and just time to think. And, and I've carried it on to an extent now. Obviously, it's a bit colder, it's a bit wetter. Mm. I'm still trying to get out there and make that time two or three times a week, just for me to to reflect on what I need to do to give the business the best chance it has of succeeding. Yes, absolutely. And um, just switching focus ever so slightly uh, here, Phil, um, we can't ignore the fact that your business is a pioneer in its field, having been the first to launch e-ticketing back in 1999, which then paved the way for other ticket agents to begin joining the uh, the sector in the same vein. Um, given that innovation and given all of your years of experience in the uh, the business as well, just for those younger generations of listeners that might well be tuning into today's episode, if you could give a message to them to really get them on the road to success, success, what message would that be? I think the the simplest thing and the clearest bit of advice that I could give to anyone who's looking to, to start something new or try something new as a business is to focus relentlessly on one aspect or, or, or make sure the service or the product you're developing has a very, very clear focus. Perhaps that's the best way to put it. Um, the way that I describe it to our team is we can't be the best at everything. There are going to be ticket agents that are really good at things that we're not so good at. They're going to offer something that's better than something we do. But we can pick our core market and we can make sure that our offering is the absolute best for that particular market. And that's what I'd say to someone doing something new is understand what you're offering, who your market is, and make sure that what you're doing is the absolute best it can be for that particular market. If it's solving a problem, make sure it's solving it in the best possible way and solve that particular problem before you try and move on to too much. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed for anybody who might be here listening uh, today. And just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Phil, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, I would like to address the, uh, the future as well. Um, because... Over the next few months, um, we know that we're going to have to keep adjusting to the new normal for the long haul based on the Prime Minister's announcement last week that restrictions could be in place until March at the very least. Um, So with that in mind, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over this next sort of 12 month period and where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Well, obviously, our biggest hope is that as many um, events can go ahead as possible because 
that's how our business will succeed. But what we recognise is that those events probably won't look like the events that we had in the summer of 2019, so last year that we have normal events. So we're expecting more hybrid events where there's a combination of, uh, of in-person and online activities. We're expecting smaller events because I think it's feasible to maybe look at getting uh, you know, a few hundred to a thousand people together, much more so than getting 20, 30, 50,000 people together for an event. Um, so we're looking at how our business can serve those needs. So sort of needs of smaller events rather than the, the bigger mass gatherings that we have been working with. Um, and their needs are different. Uh, we haven't got time to go into all of those differences now. Um, but we recognize that some, uh, particularly some of these will be in an uncertain financial position. Um, there may be new events that will spring up to fill some gaps and there'll be all sorts of challenges faced by them. So we're basically readying ourselves to help um, that new generation of, of events that are tackling things in a slightly different way to come forward. Yes, it's going to be an interesting time for the industry and it's going to have to continue to adapt to the changes that COVID-19 has uh, brought about. And that's going to be essentially the uh, the base for any success that it might have going forward. So let's just keep our fingers crossed. And most importantly, Phil, um, I actually think just given how enlightening it's been welcoming you onto the programme today, it would be a real pleasure to have you back on the show with us at some point in this next year, just to see how things are coming along in some of these innovations. Yeah, of course. I'd be delighted to do so. I certainly welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you with us today, Phil. And do also take care and stay safe in the meantime with everything still going on until hopefully we do get an opportunity to speak in future. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. I'd also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners today. Do please continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure to welcome Phil Hayes from the Ticket Sellers onto today's podcast. And coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, among others. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition. That came, of course, after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. That is coming up just next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. It's thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, yeah, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody, I'd like to um, 
repeat what I achieved, uh, it will be someone like Harry, who's a fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm never going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, and making, it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by 
the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey 
knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, maybe because it was a, 
a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's a free ball play football but amongst those houses where we lived and played there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying you know and fl- making balsa wood gliders and uh, nice guy but just didn't, didn't play football and on this particular garden uh, of course occasionally the ball finished up there and crazily enough they um, took us to court and uh we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford. And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton. Even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied, they asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously 
try me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half at school. Um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought it was a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls up and not just hitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left-back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup, some world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. 
And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that, A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and years, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over, two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as, as I always jokingly say, 
I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year. But I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, it, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it as long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife and she was. Uh, pregnant with our third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me uh, to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. And I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. 
ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.